What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. This is the first episode of season three, and today we are talking with four-time Grammy-nominated musician, singer, songwriter, actress, and author, Jewel. You likely know Jewel from her enduring hit songs such as Who Will Save Your Soul, Foolish Games, Hands, and You Were Meant For Me. Jewel has a new album coming out April 15th called Freewheelin' Woman. Then, in June, Jewel will be going on a national U.S. tour with Train and Blues Traveler, so check out her show in a city near you. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, our goal is to empower you to find your purpose and work hard to achieve that purpose so that you can lead a fulfilling and authentic life. And on the Hardcore Humanism Podcast, we talk with artists such as Jewel who have overcome obstacles as they pursue their authentic life so that we can learn from their experience as we embark on our purpose-driven journey. Now, one of the key tenets of a humanistic approach is that people are inherently good and have value. We are all trying our best to find out who we are and how we can be our best self. And one of the ways that we understand ourselves is through our connection to others. We generally want to have meaningful and fulfilling relationships, whether it be with a romantic partner, family, friends, colleagues, or part of a larger community. And if we feel good in our relationships, we hopefully feel good about ourselves, more authentic, more real, more who we are and who we want to be. The problem is that, unfortunately, finding those relationships can often be a lifelong process. We need to develop the ability to nurture healthy, fulfilling relationships and learn how to disconnect from those that are toxic or harmful. This is an ongoing and at times difficult process as we build a community around us that supports us. Sometimes we find relationships that we think will work, but for some reason don't feel fulfilling. In some cases, we have horrible experiences that include rejection, abuse, neglect, or abandonment. But when these relationships don't work, rather than seeing them as learning experiences that are part of our lifelong journey, we often blame ourselves. And as we feel disconnected from others, we become disconnected from ourselves and our purpose and lose our path to a fulfilling and authentic life. And we often feel alone and empty during this part of our journey, discouraged and broken rather than hopeful and fulfilled. Now, Jewel is someone who has been very open about having endured extreme hardship in her relationships. Jewel has previously talked about growing up in a household in which her father was an alcoholic and physically abusive. She has also shared that her mother, who was her business manager, stole money from her, leaving Jewel millions of dollars in debt despite having a thriving career. Jewel was homeless for a time because her boss withheld her pay when she refused to have sex with him. And during our conversation, we talk about how she copes with the feelings of loss, emptiness, loneliness, and anxiety that can come from toxic relationships. And Jewel talks about her secret for coping, which is that she sees this pain and anxiety not as something that is wrong with her or something to be ignored, but as something that is her ally and teacher that helps her grow as she continues on her journey of living her authentic life. So let's listen to what Jewel has to say. All right, Jewel, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is something that people are really feeling right now. And you wrote in your song, Grateful, which is coming out on your new album, when your friends don't come around. That's one of the lyrics. And 
I think that right now at this moment in history, so many people are feeling disconnected or disappointed or, or just bewildered by their friends and, and the world in general. And they're trying to figure out how do they understand the people in their life and the world anymore. And you are someone who has dealt with that in your music for years. And so one of the things I wanted to start with was, you know, kind of going back, I guess, as early as you feel comfortable to uh, when you, for the first time, started feeling like, hey, I, I don't know if I can count on people or maybe people aren't here for me in the way that I want them to be. I grew up in an abusive household, so I think those feelings probably go back, you know, before I could probably articulate. I think I started becoming more self-aware, maybe by age eight, you, you know, you start to be able to observe yourself in a different way. I knew that I was in pain. I could tell that um, the divorce, my mom had left, left us. My dad took over raising us. My dad was suddenly drinking uh, became physically abusive pretty much overnight. We went from a nice, loving Mormon family to drinking, smoking, single dad, um, and started singing in bar rooms all in the same year. So I was singing for drunks, and I was able to recognize that I was in pain. And I could recognize people in the bar room were in pain. And I was seeing how people were dealing with it. I was seeing people drink, rage, you know, like that red-faced, screaming, drunk, like... <laughs> rage um i saw people getting in relationships and using that um and it dawned on me it's funny i was singing at a bar i remember exactly where i was uh, called the lands in and it dawned on me that we're not taught what to do with pain which seemed really weird because haven't we been around for a really long time as a human race <laughs> And so that kind of probably started my journey. I made a vow to myself that day that I would never drink or do drugs. I, I saw it. I see in pictures. So I saw this image of like a piece of sand, like with an oyster, right? There's a sand. It's irritating. But people weren't making pearls. They were making, they were piling on uh, drinking or drugs or relationships. And it created a mountain. And by the time they got to their deathbed, because I sang in bars for quite a long time and these drinks didn't make it all the time. You know, I'd sing in the parking lot to raise money for a wooden coffin, you know, pretty bleak endings to a lot of these stories. And I just realized I need to handle my pain as it comes. If I can like try, try to handle it. The Buffalo is the only animal that goes into the heart of the storm. It'll go directly to it. And it really taught me that the quickest way is through move toward the pain. And I had writing, you know, for some reason I liked writing, I journaled. And so I began to turn to writing as my way of, of handling the pain. And, you know, it became a career oddly. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that's I find very interesting is that now, you know, decades later, your music is part of what people like myself use for that very experience. You know, how, how does one handle pain? But, but as a kid, I, I hear what you're saying is that you thought, okay, I'm, I'm observing this. But how did you have the faith to believe that there was a, a, a there there, you know, where there was some kind of endpoint where people could handle pain? Um, I felt like I didn't know how to articulate at the time. This is something I've recently written 
but it was what it was the suspicion I think I had when I was young. It's that all of our hearts are destined to be broken. It's what we do with the pieces that make us extraordinary. So pain is a byproduct of life. Nobody gets out of here without pain. So there must be a way to handle it. Otherwise, it's not like, what, did God make a mistake? Like, oh, sorry, humanity, you're able to experience pain. I don't think it's like that. I think that we forgot what to do with it. And, you know, now looking at it as a larger historical concept, super broad, but let's say we went from a village lifestyle, right? More traditional. We had healers in the village. Um, we had warriors. We had ways of handling and healing our warriors. We were raised in just a much more close-knit community that you could call, you know, broadly very holistic. Um, and I believe personally that there were probably better techniques, more co less complex world, obviously, you know, some being super broad, but I, I think that we had techniques and developed techniques where our humanity was very integrated. Our spirituality was not separate from our, you know, parenting was not separate from our way that we cultivated food. It was all very uh, interconnected. I think that when we became urbanized, we became schizophrenic as a humanity. Um, we became fractured. We, we took our education and put it in a building way over here. We took our medicine and just only addressed the body in a building way over here. And then we became more specialized where the kidney was in that building and, you know, lung specialists were in that building and so on. Our work lives became separate. Our spiritual lives became other, separate. And we don't know how to live and create all of these things in an interwoven capacity. And we're seeing the strain. You know, I think that that works for 50 years, 100 years. But I think we're seeing right now where we're at as a culture is from a very long exposure to living life in a really, uh, I don't know how to describe it, schizophrenic way. And this thing that you're talking about, about the value of pain. I mean, I, I feel like working with people, that's where the pivot starts. If, if you are someone who sees pain as something to fear, to be extinguished, to be beaten down, to be ridiculed, you know, as some kind of path to disgrace, you're, you're, you're going to deal with it in a certain way. If you see it as part of uh, a, a richer, emotional experience, if you see it as something that could potentially heal as something that can, where you can learn from it, then you go down a different path. And, and I think what you're saying makes total sense because that is in some ways how we deal. And don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't want people to experience pain, but there are some situations like when you love someone and you have lost that, I mean, does anyone really want to be loved in a way such that if that's lost, that, that there's no pain involved? I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. Yeah, we don't get to separate it, you know, whether philosophically, you know, there's days where I go, I wish I could have a heartbreak, you know, you don't get to like, it's part of the gig. If you're alive, it's part of the gig. Um, and it's the exquisite ecstasy of life. Um, but we do need to be given more tools. Like it's ridiculous that we have forgotten what to do with pain, how to have practical conversations around how do you convert it? How do you not let this tank you? Why doesn't every kid know that the part of your brain that processes physical pain, right? A broken leg is the same part of your brain that processes emotional pain. Your little brain in its little dark box doesn't know the difference. It's painful, psychologically scary. That's why we avoid it so much. It's scary. 
it's a lot easier when you go, oh, there's tools. Um, avoidant behavior is the worst thing you can do because just think of it in a chemic, you know, chemical chemistry setting. Like, let's say you have a chemical, it's going to remain itself until it's exposed to something, right? When it's exposed to flame, it changes. It's in relationship to something else. And in that relationship, we change. And so when we try to disassociate, right, when we try to abstain from our anxiety, when we try to mask our anxiety, when we try to ignore our anxiety, our anxiety has no shot at changing. You just further entrench it because, again, like a chemical element, it can't, it's not exposed to something to get a chance to change. And so, again, moving toward the pain, when I stopped looking at my anxiety as an enemy, when I stopped looking at my anxiety as something that was a, a sign saying I'm broken, something's wrong with me, but instead changed that narrative to saying, wait a minute, what if my anxiety means something's right with me? Maybe it means everything's working. And so I started to see it like a car alarm. You know, a car alarm goes off when somebody's trying to break in. You wouldn't get mad at the car alarm. It's doing its job. Your anxiety, my anxiety is my body's way of giving me an alarm saying something I am consuming does not agree with me. Like food poisoning, right? I eat bad chicken. I throw up. Why would I be mad at throwing up? It's my body's way of saying you ate something that disagrees with you. Don't do it again. Be more thoughtful. So my anxiety is my body's alarm system saying, hey, I just consumed a thought, a feeling, or an action that does not agree with me. And we should get curious about that. We should say, thank you, anxiety. I am going to stop. I'm going to get out my little pen because that's what I do. And I go, all right, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? Um, I was hanging out with Sarah, and Sarah always shit talks everybody at work, and it makes me really anxious. Oh, well, that makes sense. I'm going to have to stop hanging out with Sarah or I'm going to have to talk with Sarah or, you know, whatever the, the action is. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Our anxiety is there to tell us we're consuming something that doesn't agree with us. Are you willing to change that behavior? That's evolution. You're growing. You're now part of the human race and you're participating and you're growing as a human. If you can see what's, you know, not agreeing with you and you don't want to change the behavior, that's fine. But don't complain about it. The next time you're anxious, you better just suck it up. <laughs> Well, you know, I, can I tell you, I, it's so gratifying to hear you say that because this is exactly what I say to people who I work with. Like, I'll talk about it almost as if you have a dog and the dog's barking. The last thing you want to do is just reflexively tell it to shut up. You want to go over it and be like, hey, what are, you, what are you seeing? And then like, you know, maybe there is something scary. And, and there are situations where the dog may be barking at something that it can learn eventually it doesn't have to be afraid of. Oh, this is a friend or, oh, this is that's a squirrel. And, and, but there is something else that you might have to be afraid of. And the idea that people would want to shut down the guard dog or the alarm system, like you're talking about, I, I just don't know what the end game is to that. And that's part of what people, what you're talking about, about how we do things in different ways. It's like, we expect people to, we go someplace to not feel pain or to be super positive or to be optimistic, but okay. So what do we do when something doesn't fit into that space and we get totally disconnected from ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's a failure of, you know, not that you can point fingers, right. You're, we're talking about a hundred year arc of urbanization of we have built an altar to the intellect. We have not valued the emotional and we're paying a price. So even our approach in psychotherapy can tend to be 
um, not that I'm against medicine, you know, but it can tend to be masking and not always behavioral, right? Not giving people tools to help get to behavioral changes. And it's like taking your car to the mechanic. If you go to the mechanic and that mechanic is an expert and they say, this car can't be fixed. I can't get it to change. You're going to be depressed. So if you go to a therapist and you're not seeing the changes you want in your life, you're going to be egoic about it, right? You're going to say something's wrong with me. Even the expert can't fix me. (laughs) And that isn't the case. We're just for some reason um, a little behind, I think, in offering practical, practicable tools that give people relief, real changes in their life. And it is a practice and you have to participate, you know, and if a person doesn't want to, you can't make them, but that's, you know, in my youth foundation, this is all we do. Like for 20 years, we've been figuring out how do you give people practical tools without therapy? Not that I'm against therapy. I love therapy. I just was a kid that didn't have access to it. And I refused to say, what does that mean? I don't get to be happy. Misery is an equal opportunist. You know, dysfunction lives in rich households. It lives in poor households. Um, Misery can be experienced if you're the most powerful CEO or a homeless person because it's an inheritance, right? I um, I moved out when I was 15 and I knew statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle. And it was depressing to think at 15, my life was over because I was able to realize I had this genetic inheritance and it gave me a predisposition to diabetes or something. I was also given an emotional inheritance and it gave me a predisposition to addiction, to uh, abuse, to being in an abusive relationship because I was able to see that in every generation of my family. So I realized, oh my God, like if my nurture was this bad, could I ever get to know my nature? And I tried to figure out my life's mission at 15 became how do I re-nurture myself? How do I I didn't know the word trauma at the time, but how do I get underneath how trauma has altered me to get back to my authentic expression of myself? It's an ambitious mission, you know, at 15, but it's what my whole life has been about. And so when you see misery for a CEO, for a rich, for a really poor person, it's because of this emotional inheritance. And there is no school that we can go to right now to learn a new emotional language. And that's unfortunate because it's really scary for people because they think it's permanent, right? I grew up speaking this language. I'll speak this language forever. What's the point of living? Um, And so for me, the real fun in my entire life has been learning how do I create tools to help people intervene, to help them sort of get in that driver's seat neurologically and get off autopilot, neurological autopilot, to be able to drive their life where they want to go. Now, you're talking about this concept of pushing things back so you can find your authenticity. And that that's something that uh, is very consistent with how I view how I want people to grow and heal, how I try to do that myself. And and I'm just kind of curious, you're talking about these these tools. If you can just talk a little bit about how you conceptualize, how do, how do you even know what your authentic self is and, and what is kind of the practice that you go through to try to, I don't know if it's invoke that or discover that or, or build that. Um, it's a great question. So again, I think in pictures, um, where I really gained headway with this one was when I was in my mid thirties, I have a book called never broken. Um, 
it took me 300 and something pages to describe my relationship with my mom. So I won't do a great job here, but basically at 34 or something like that, I woke up and realized I was $3 million in debt and that my mom, who was my manager, was not the person I thought that she was. And that much of what I had been told was the narrative of my life by my mother wasn't actually even true. It was made up. You talk about a psychologically crushing thing to come to terms with. Um, I canceled my tour and I just focused on my mental health. And the recovery process taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about myself. One of the best things it taught me was exactly what you're talking about. I'd had this, I was peeling an orange (laughs) and there was this peel and underneath was the fruit. And I looked at that like nature versus nurture. My nurture was the peel and the fruit was me. And I had begun to overly identify with my nurture. I'd confused my nurture with who I was, but it was all just a narrative. It was a story. And so how do you get to know the fruit as it were? How do you get to know what's inside of you versus the psychological wrapping that you've acquired and accumulated over a lifetime. I remembered this allegory. I think I had read it in a Joseph Campbell book called the golden statue. Um, It's a, a story. It might even be historical, but basically a village realizes another village is about to come attack them and they have a very precious statue made of solid gold. And so in prepping for the war, they cover the statue in mud so that the invaders don't know its value. The war comes and goes, the havoc of war, people are just trying to rebuild and recover. And they forget about the statue, wasn't the, you know, their top priority. And generations go by until one day it rains and a little boy is at the statue and a little bit of gold starts to show at the toe. And the value of the statue, which had been obscured from the village for at least a generation, becomes made plain. So I really, I remember this allegory. I'm in the bathroom looking in the mirror, you know, having a real existential crisis from what happened. And I was like, that's me. I'm the golden statue. And I realized like to find your nature, you have to do a very loving, the most loving, it, it brings tears to my eyes, the most loving, the most tender archeological dig back to your authenticity. And the thing that I realized would make this uh, not as daunting, first of all, that's just a nice perspective shift because thinking that you're broken, I felt broken. Thinking that you're broken is daunting because then you have to fix it. It's, It's a very scary proposition. When you feel like nothing's wrong with you, that you're not broken, you just actually have to get rid of what isn't you. That's a much more um, doable prospect. Uh, And there's a much better like light at the end of the tunnel. And the great news is even if you don't have help from a therapist, you you can do this process. Um, And I used my anxiety. My anxiety became my very, very best friend. Um, I, it, it took a lot of presence, right? So I had to cultivate a ton of being able to be consciously present. So I put mindfulness into two groups, inactive and active. Uh, One is building the muscle, like the bicep curl that helps my brain be able to sustain conscious presence for longer and longer periods of time. So part of your strategy has to be, you know, meditating, writing, doing things that help your mind be consciously present for longer and longer periods of time. That won't change your life, though. 
that just puts you in a, a posture, a position to change your life. The very first thing you have to do if you're going to try to get under the skin of nurture is be present because that lifts the orange peel off the fruit. Presence creates a gap where you start to notice you have a thought, you notice you're having a thought, you stop and you pause. That gap is that little tiny pocket between the peel and the orange. It's like uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I would say I perceive what I think, therefore I am. We're the observers of thought. If I can observe I'm sad, I'm something other than sad. I'm the observer of sad. The observer is our authentic self. It's our nature. And there is a wellspring of intelligence that is beyond the intellect that lives in every single person. I have never seen it fail. Where when they start lifting that skin, where you can start to notice I'm having a thought, it's causing me to be anxious. I'm going to stop and I'm going to breathe. I'm going to create a gap. And then I'm going to get super curious here. What was I thinking, feeling, or doing? And um, I remember I was in a theater. I was almost about to have a panic attack. This is after this whole thing happened with my mom. Something really triggered me, but I wasn't present enough to see what was triggering me. I left the theater. I sat in my car. I had a pen and a paper. And I realized it had triggered a, a cycle of thought that was really nurtured into me by my mom. And it was only because of my anxiety that I was able to see it. It was like this little neon sign. And I have come to be so profoundly grateful for my anxiety because it was my healer. It was that little voice in me saying, and, and that's the, the, the thing I'd like everybody listening of, they want to try this, be willing to say your anxiety is an ally. It's your friend saying, if I'm thinking this and it's making me anxious, a good chance is it's not authentically me. You know, this does take you, you operating on the idea that if you're anxious, it isn't your authentic self. And then are you willing to do something about it? And that might mean quitting your job. It might mean breaking up with your boyfriend. It might mean you have to create a real plan because you're so mean to yourself that you can't stand to be present because you're so psychologically cruel to yourself and you have to create a plan to intervene on that. You know, it isn't getting present doesn't mean we'll always like what we see, but it gives you a shot to change it. It's so interesting what you're describing as, as the anxiety as an ally. And I, I think it's almost similar in the more, uh, if you want to call it positive direction. I think that that's why so many people when they experience music, you know, like a lot, you're saying like a lot of people don't have therapists. I think so many people say, well, music saved me, you know, whatever that, that means. But part of it is that that's when a lot of people feel they're most authentic. They're just, they just know deep in their heart. I'm listening to a song that resonates with me. And I, I would, I would just, you know, kind of add to what you're saying is, is just, I think it's the same thing. If you're looking for your authentic self, look, just to sort of observe what makes you feel good versus what doesn't. It's like you were describing. It's like, sometimes we have these relationships where it's like, I'm supposed to be close to this person. I'm supposed to feel good, but I just don't. And it's so hard for us to accept that. But if you ignore that, that's when, like you said, you're just farther and farther away from who you are. Yeah. You know, it's hard being accountable for your happiness. It's why we like to give it away. We like to make other people responsible for our happiness. 
we let politicians, we let boyfriends, we let partners, we let children, we let work. But at the end of the day, your life will not change as long as you're making excuses. And that's just kind of the hard truth of it. The good news is your happiness is up to you. The bad news is your happiness is up to you. <laughs> and being accountable to it is a bitch. It's, it, it's a real responsibility because once you know, oh, this interaction is unhealthy, you got to do something about it. Well, uh, if you had any final thoughts uh, that you wanted to share. Um, I have a free mental health website if people are curious about really simple behavioral practices that are like three minute exercises. Um, they can go to jewelneverbroken.com. Um, it explains a lot of the science um, there as well. Um, just so if anybody's struggling or just curious, feel free to check that out. It's also an amazing community. Um, I'm also working on a book right now. Um, I felt really lucky. Eckhart Tolle is uh, read my first draft and gave me a lot of notes and I just finished my second draft. So he has it again. Um, so hopefully that'll, It'll come out, but it's basically what I've been talking about today and really excited to be able to come back and share more of it. Well, listen, thank you so much. I think the ideas you have about healing and mental health are are right on and it, it's, it really resonates. And I know it'll, uh, I think a lot of people will really pick up on it and hopefully be motivated or inspired to kind of look at their mental health in a different way. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks. Had a wonderful time. So there you have it. Jewel talking about how she deals with how disappointing and sometimes damaging relationships can be as we look to build authentic and fulfilling connections with others. Now, there's so much we can take away from the conversation with Jewel. But one of the key concepts that I want to highlight is her description of being broken. One of her famous lyrics from the song Hands is, I am never broken. But in some ways, she's actually redefining the term. Broken is often used to mean defective or dysfunctional. And that's how we often feel when a relationship isn't working or ends. We assume that this means that there is something wrong with us. But broken can mean something very different. A break with the past where we disconnect from toxic, abusive, or unfulfilling relationships as we pursue our purpose of having more authentic and meaningful connections. So many times I find that people feel most alone as they are disconnecting from toxic parts of their life and opening themselves to new and perhaps healthier, more fulfilling parts of their life. And this is natural and understandable. Oftentimes we get into or stay in bad relationships because we don't want to feel defective, empty, or lonely. But we have to remember what Jules said, that this pain is part of us, not something to be ignored or avoided, but rather something that can teach us. When we are broken, we are not defective, but rather on an important part of our journey in which we can learn and grow as we build connections that lead us to a more authentic and purpose-driven life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for editing and producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please write a review and share our podcast with others. And if you'd like to take the next step and make a change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program at hardcorehumanism.com. Just as a heads up, this season, we will be sharing our podcast monthly rather than weekly. So look for next month's podcast in early May with Ann Wilson of Heart. So get at it, hardcore humans. See you next time.